Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Chapter 8 The snakes discussed several other matters amongst themselves, but Baz barely heard any of it. What had he been thinking? Assuming the responsibility of stopping these idiots from trying to murder a bunch of readers? What did he care? In only thirty days to get to fortune, find the declaimer's transcendence, and return? Huh. Round trip from erstwhile to fortune and back would take nearly a month by itself, and that didn't even account for Scribes knew how long it'd take him to come up with even some semblance of a plan for figuring out how to find the blasted thing. Tessa had told him it was in Liamina Library, and Aramir the Book Dragon had confirmed that, but that was almost as useless as just telling him it was somewhere in the city. Baz had never been to Fortune, of course, but by all accounts it was huge. Liamina Library alone was supposedly as large as nearly all of Erstwhile, a city unto itself. The reprieve he'd just gained for the snake's targets was a delay of the inevitable. All those readers were going to die anyway. The only difference was that now Baz was going to have all those deaths on his conscience. Bastion? Hm? Baz looked up, realizing the whole room was staring at him. Munch was holding out a lit torch toward him. Oh, sorry. I was just... well, never mind. What's this? Anel lifted her head back, eyes rolling. It's how the warriors end all their meetings, Og said. The scribes wrote in their lessons that all things are bound by fire, so we light one to remind ourselves of the commitment we've made to one another. Oggs raised his eyebrows, nodding toward the torch Munch still held out. Baz managed to stifle his expression before it slipped into a full-on grimace. Perhaps Oggs was well-intentioned, just seeking to give Baz an opportunity to endear himself to the other snakes by voluntarily partaking in this little ceremony of theirs. But Baz wanted no part of their rebellion, and he disliked making a promise, even if only an implied one, that he didn't intend to keep. However, he disliked the thought of death even more, and the look in Og's eyes when he'd assaulted Munch earlier had not passed from Baz's memory. He took the torch. Someone had rolled a barrel near the room's center. It had a few dry sticks and scraps of bark within. Baz touched the torch to them, and they lit easily, flames licking up over the barrel's rim. The sharp fragrance of burning pine prickled Baz's nostrils. For several moments, all the snakes stood in silence, 
staring at the flames. Then Oves reached into his robes and produced a book. Baz recoiled instinctively. He'd been loath to be anywhere near a spoken book ever since Tax had been maimed for stealing one, and lately Deliritus had been particularly strict about Baz keeping as far away from them as possible. None of the other snakes seemed startled, though. Not even when Ogues opened the volume, revealing that nearly a quarter of its pages had been ripped from the binding and ripped another free from the spine. The shearing sound of paper parting from the leather cover might as well have been a man's pained scream for how it jolted Baz's senses. What are you doing? Ogues ignored him. He crumpled the page and tossed it into the flames. Fire and ash, he said. The books will burn, the others repeated. Baz stood there slack-jawed as the others went back to staring into the flames. Defacing a spoken book was considered as heinous a crime as murder, perhaps an even more serious offense in the eyes of most readers, depending on the identity of who'd been killed. And while Baz didn't necessarily care about offending a reader, he did care about being associated with others who took action that could get him killed. The sticks and bark, not to mention the page from the spoken book, were quickly consumed by the flames, and the fire died away within a few minutes. You know, I hear the warriors in Fortune have a ritual dance they perform around their closing fires, Anel said. Do you know how to dance, Bastion? She raised her arms above her head, revealing a shapely midriff, and shook her hips from side to side. Baz nearly choked on his own tongue, trying to say he'd never danced in his life, but only managed to get out a surprised wheeze. Stop it, Danelle, Ogues said. This isn't a party. It's the future of speakers everywhere. Maybe the Scrivniks and Fortune feel the need to rub up on one another each time they meet, but we'll have none of that here. Anel dropped her arms, folding them across her chest, and frowned at Ogues. That's all for tonight, Ogues said. We've been away from our libraries for too long already. We'll meet again next week. He'll speak the words, to set us free, the others said in unison. Rather quickly, the snakes dispersed. Lens gave Baz a quick smile on his way out, but the others hurried to their respective tunnels without a backward glance. After a few hushed words, Munch took the book from which Ogues had torn the page. He began to scurry out, but stopped. Setting the book on the ground, he lifted the leather pouch from around his neck, squeezing the top to form an opening. He scooped it into the barrel, collecting some of the ashy remnants of the fire. He grinned at Ogues, then departed with only the briefest of glares at Baz. Come on, Ogues said, motioning to a tunnel no one had entered, presumably the one leading to Torchsire Library. Baz followed because there seemed no alternative. Also, as frightening as Ogues seemed at times, he'd also gone out of his way to defend Baz to the other snakes. It was dark as the elsewhere in the tunnel, and Ogues had only brought a single torch, so Baz had to stick close by him, 
The oil Oogs had used to light the thing had gone bad, and the torch stank as it burned. They walked in silence for some time, and Baz fell into one of his brooding states. Not only had he taken it upon himself to stop a mass murder, he'd also tacitly promised the snakes some sort of salvation. Despite Aramere's assurance that he had personally delivered the Declaimer's transcendence to fortune some three hundred years ago, Baz still wasn't sure he believed it existed. Now he was going about representing it to others as some grand weapon against the readers? You felt bad for them. Bah! He actually swatted a hand through the air as if he could strike the thought down. Burning of a time to develop a conscience. Sure, he felt bad for them, but no more so than he lamented his own condition. Maybe the snakes would kill a few readers, but they'd all be dead in the end, just as Farston had done to the speakers in Fortune, these so-called warriors. As much as he despised Torchsire Library and what it'd done to him, he'd never dreamed of rebellion. What was the point? Without the ability to read, speakers were just a lot of impoverished nothings. A dozen harbors could probably kill every last speaker in all of Erstwhile without losing a single one of their own. You're not what I expected, Oogs said. What? Baz snapped, both surprised and annoyed at having his dark thoughts interrupted. Oh, don't take it as an insult. I don't mean that in a bad way. At least, I don't think so. Just, I expected you to be a rabid dog when it came to readers. I hate them more than enough. Sure, I don't doubt it. But you're not a dope about it. Like my brother, for instance. He can't see past the first few dead bodies. Most of the snakes can't. Truth be told, I have trouble with it. You, though, you're practical. <laughs> I just want to stay breathing, Ogs. Hmm, I guess. But anyone who isn't a fool wants that. But with you, I think the difference is that you want others to keep breathing, too. Not burning the whole library to spite the conservator. Baz scoffed. You're way overthinking this, making me sound like some sort of visionary. Well, you saw the short-sightedness of our plan quick enough, Oogs said. Baz scowled into the darkness. I saw a bunch of killing that accomplished nothing. Besides, if you think my observation was so astute, why are you planning to go through with the plan if I'm not back in a month? There's a good chance I could do exactly what I said I'd do and not be back in time. Oogs was silent for a time. Action, he finally said. I might see some sense in what you say, but the others need something to keep them going. And murder, is that something? Oogs stopped and poked Baz in the chest hard enough to make him stumble back. Don't get all Xavier Tower on me. You're saying you've never done anything you're not proud of because it was necessary? Baz wanted to snap some angry remark back, but then he thought of Arrow, Hellar Xavier's harbor. Baz had vaporized him with a bone-chillingly awful shadow spell. 
He hadn't even known what the attack would do when he'd read it, but he'd had to act. And then there was Marla Colnar. Baz lost no sleep, knowing she was dead. Still, he'd decided all on his own that she deserved to die instead of others. Was that any different than what Ogs and the Snakes were planning? He wanted to think so, but wasn't entirely certain. Is what you said back there true? Ogs asked. There's actually some grand weapon at Fortune that could aid us? Suddenly, Baz's palms were rather sweaty. He could barely make out Og's face, but Baz could feel his scrutiny. And it suddenly occurred to Baz that no one would ever find his body here if Og's decided he didn't like his answer. I don't know, Baz said. That's what they told me, the cityless. And you believe them? Believe them? No. They were manipulating me nearly as much as the readers, but someone I do trust corroborated their story, so yeah, I guess I do believe there's something to it. Oggs gave a grunt that reminded Baz of rocks, then began walking again. If you're not back in a month, I'll delay our plan as long as I can. But be quick. If the all-seeing one commands us to go forward, the others won't care what I have to say. I'll do what I can, Baz said, hoping Oggs couldn't hear too much of the relief in his tone. That's all we can do, Oggs said. Walk the true path, wrote the Enigma. <laughs> Baz snorted. You don't really strike me as the religious type, Oggs. Scrivniks don't generally go around picking fights with readers. The crooked-nosed speaker chuckled. My library's conservator recites passages from the scribe's lessons on occasion. There's some sense in them if you listen hard enough. Baz considered asking Ogs how much sense the scribes could possibly have had if they'd permitted the burning to nearly destroy all of oration, but decided not to push his luck any further than he already had that evening. They traveled the rest of the way in silence, finally coming to what at first appeared to be a dead end. But after some careful inspection, Baz found it was actually the back of a set of shelves. After some feeling around in the dark, he and Oggs found handholds and pushed them aside, opening a clear way into Torchsire Library's sub-basement. I leave you here, Oggs said, but take this. He reached into a pocket and came out holding a leather pouch attached to a cord, same as many of the other snakes had been wearing. Rip a page out of a spoken book and burn it, just as we did back there, then put the ashes in here. Once you do, you'll be one of us. What makes you think I want that? Oz shrugged. You followed a stranger around half of erstwhile at the mere prospect of doing some harm to readers, and I think you've enough sense to see that something needs to be done, even if you don't agree with what we think needs doing. Take this, and maybe you can convince a few others of your way of thinking. My way of thinking is not drawing attention to myself by overt acts of, say, yo, homicide. 
but after staring at the pouch hanging from Og's hand for another moment, Baz snatched it. I'll think about it. Oggs gave him a thin smile, then turned and was off back down the tunnel. Baz considered the empty leather pouch. Why had he taken it? He wasn't out to change the world, and even if he was, he was just a lowly speaker. It was hard enough to keep himself from being trampled under the reader's oppression. How could he even think it possible to aid others in their plight? He ought to just chuck the thing away and forget he'd ever met Ogs. In all likelihood, he'd be dead before Baz ever saw him again. Baz shoved the pouch into a pocket of his robes and headed into the Torchsire sub-basement. Chapter 9 Baz realized a bit too late that he had no light without Ogs. After managing to stub his toe not once, but twice, on the old shelving unit, he managed to get it shoved back in front of the entrance to the tunnel system. Baz didn't think any reader had come down here in years, but why chance that someone might stumble upon the tunnels? He didn't want to join the snakes, most certainly not, but they were already doing enough to get themselves killed without Baz contributing further by leaving such an obvious opening exposed for anyone with a torch to see. Baz waited for his eyes to adjust to the sub-basement's pitch darkness, but when a seeming eternity passed without any change, he sighed and began to grope his way forward. How did the retirees manage? This was how his brother spent every waking moment? Thankfully, after about a minute of stumbling about, the pulse of rhythmic chanting caught Baz's attention, and he moved toward it. He nearly walked into a stone column, but after getting around it, the light of a brazier became visible in the murk, and Baz made his way toward it. The retirees were gathered around the burning coals. Tax was seated just behind the brazier, the flames casting shadows across his face and the wrap around his eyes, giving his visage an unsettling illusion of deformity. The others were in a circle that began on either side of Tax, such that those at the end opposite Tax were nearly out of the flame's glow. Baz grimaced as he realized Gar's body was still there as well, lying at Tax's feet. As with all of the songs Tax had composed in his years as a retiree, the one being chanted by the group was in a language of the Trinity, it was more ululation than actual music, soft wails of pain and anger punctuated by the occasional sharp consonant for which destruction was known. By the time Baz reached the group, though, the tune had risen in volume and intensity, the voices of the two dozen or so retirees reverberating off the sub-basement's high ceilings. Louder and faster it went! Baz's breaths quickened, and his throat began to ache. It took him several seconds to realize that was because he was shouting along with the rest of the retirees, an inexplicable urge to join in the retirees' mourning overtaking him. It was a dirge for Gar and a lament for their treatment by the readers, all rolled into one. 
Baz lifted his head back and howled into the dark void above, along with the other retirees. Quickly, he was out of breath, yet he continued to cry out in between gulps for air. Like a blazing inferno, the song eventually consumed itself, decrescendoing almost as quickly as it had escalated, until only the sounds of heavy breathing and a few sobs remained. Baz's hands shook from the sudden exertion of energy, and he was surprised to find his own cheeks damp with tears. Scribes! Tex's songs often had a mystical impact on him, but rarely were they so visceral. Even now, with the chanting done, Baz still felt the heat of anger burning in his belly. Gar shouldn't have had to die here in the dark. None of them should have to. Yet all speakers were fated to such an end, that was, unless a reader on a whim decided to end their lives sooner. Get a hold of yourself, Baz. It was just music. He shouldn't let it put such thoughts into his head. It was a good thing the snakes hadn't been there to hear it. They'd have begun spilling their poison into the library's reservoirs before the chanting had finished. Baz stood off to the side while Tax hugged a few retirees and spoke quiet words into their ears. Eventually, the crowd dispersed as it always did, Retirees seemed to seek out the musical gatherings Tax organized, but they never stayed together long once they ended. Baz had never asked, but he'd surmised over the years that their apparent preference for isolation grew from the knowledge of their powerlessness. At any time, one of the retirees could simply disappear without explanation. Sometimes it wasn't much of a surprise— Duke Octavenal would never be confused for a man of mercy. Even a speaker who'd committed an offense carrying a penalty of death was often first blinded and consigned to the sub-basement for an indeterminate amount of time, left in the darkness with the constant dread of knowing one day soon their end would come. Others, however, disappeared without explanation and over the years, Baz had simply come to accept that on any given day, a retiree might just be gone, never to be seen again. In his younger years, this fear had extended to Tax, but as Baz grew, he realized that, even blind, Tax remained valuable for the proclivity he carried in his blood, his rare ability to excel at all three branches of the Trinity whereas most speakers only ever learned one. Tax never spoke of it, but Baz knew that at least once per week the Duke had him brought out of the basement for breeding. The anger Tax's song had ignited within him flared. That made his brother sound like an animal, and that was precisely how the readers thought of both the retirees and speakers. Baz had once inadvertently seen a report in a sheaf of papers Deliritus had carelessly left lying on a table. Baz couldn't read the common tongue in which ordinary papers such as that were written, but he'd been smart enough to work out that the document had been an inventory of Torchsire assets. The speakers and retirees had been listed right beside livestock. Baz? He started at his brother's voice. 
How could you possibly know, Tax? And don't say my cadence. I wasn't even moving. Tax shrugged. We slept at each other's side for over eight years, Baz. I know you're breathing. But still, you surprised me. When did you get here? Well, that's a bit of a story. Now, this is probably going to sound like one of my wisecracks, but would you believe that there's a secret tunnel behind a set of shelves at the back of the sub-basement here? I know. Yeah, I couldn't believe it either. Wait, you know? You'd be surprised what secrets the sub-basement holds if you'd only take the time to look. Baz could only gape at his brother for several seconds. Tax's tone was as if Baz had just told him fire was hot or that readers were cruel, rather than revealed that there was a secret way out of the library. You know? Baz repeated. Tax ignored the incredulity in Baz's tone. I knew this would happen sooner or later. I assume this means you've met Ogs and the others? Ogs and the... You mean you know the snakes? A smile briefly appeared on Tax's lips, like an ear of grain caught in a breath of wind. I told them to come up with something more... inspired. But Munch thought up the snakes, and they all have trouble telling him no. He's O's little brother, but they all treat him like a younger sibling. So the name stuck. Baz's insides suddenly felt as if he'd swallowed a cupful of worm ichor. Tax. Ogues told me that their leader is called the All-Seeing One. Do you know him? In a manner of speaking, Tax replied, to the extent that any man can truly be said to know himself. Baz's knees gave out, and he sat down hard on the cold stone floor. A shiver buzzed through his body, though it had nothing to do with the temperature. Poison, Tax? You must know how many people that would kill. Illiterate ink! I drink the water that comes from the library reservoir. Don't be dramatic, Baz. None of the snakes are from Torchsire. Our water supply wouldn't have been tainted. You think I would risk your well-being? Baz felt slightly foolish, both for having made the suggestion and for thinking his brother could be so cold. Still, this was murder they were talking about. Thanks for the consideration, but still, what about the other libraries? Speakers drink from their reservoirs as well. It's time we start doing something, Baz. Sacrificing some speakers from the other libraries would be... regrettable. But we have to begin somewhere. It's murder, Tax. It's war, Baz. War? Baz's voice cracked, forcing him to clear his throat before he continued. It's not war, it's suicide. Sure, you'll do some killing, but they're not fools. They're book-burning tyrants, but not fools. They'll figure out what happened, and then they'll find who did it and kill them, and none of us will be any better off. That's the sort of defeatist attitude they want us to have, Baz. Don't you see? They hoard the power, make our plight seem hopeless, but their power is based on lies. You discovered the truth all on your own, that anyone, not just those the readers deem speakers, can unlock the power held in the spoken books. Baz glowered at his brother, even though he knew it would do no good. 
It still seemed too impossible to believe, but Madame Scrivener Tessa's eyes had held no deceit when she'd revealed that awful truth to him beneath the ruined great library of tome. Do you have any idea the combined ratio of speakers and illits in erstwhile to readers? Tex asked. No, Baz replied. It's at least ten to one, Baz. Even without the power to read, if we could actually mobilize those numbers, we would crush the readers with sheer manpower alone. We just need a leader, someone courageous enough to act in the face of that nameless and undefined idea of terror that the readers have instilled in us. And that's you? No one else seems willing to try. That's because most of us have one thing in common with the readers. We aren't fools either. Baz, I told them not to do it. You what? The snakes. I told them not to poison the water. Why would you do that? Because unlike you, I'd have to watch all those people die. Baz literally tried to reach out and catch the words as they left his mouth, but they were already gone, sent out into the world by his stupidity. Tax grimaced and turned away from Baz, even though he couldn't see. Tax, I'm... That's why I told them to listen to you, Baz. You do what you think is right to be elsewhere with what anyone else thinks. So you agree with me, then? I didn't say that. <sighs> then you shouldn't have told them to listen to me. Scribes, what have you been telling them about me? It was almost like they thought I was the Enigma Reborn or something when they first saw me. Rather than respond with anger, Tex turned his head down to one side, a full smile tugging at his lips. Baz clenched his hands into fists. He hated when his brother got that look. Nothing untrue, Tex said. Nothing untrue. They think I tamed a dragon and flew it to Tome. You did. That wasn't how it happened at all but apparently his brother intended to be incorrigible this evening. I'm going to fortune, Tax. Baz felt more satisfaction than he ought to have as the smile disappeared from his brother's face. How? Baz told him of Duke Farston's appearance, the uprising in fortune, and the calling of the Triumvirate Congress. And I told the snakes, Baz finished, you told them about the Declaimer's transcendence? Not exactly, just that the Cityless told me there was an object of power there that could help all the speakers. And that convinced them? No, Baz said. Not all of them, anyway. But Oogs seems to have some sense, despite all his crooked nose and swollen ears would suggest. He convinced the rest to hold off, for a month at least. Tax was silent for a time, face angled downward and rubbing at his chin with his thumb. Finally, he said, So you're going to fortune. I haven't got much choice, but even if I did, I couldn't very well sit here knowing what will happen if I don't return with something. Tax drummed the fingers of one hand on the arm of his chair, lips pursed in thought. Finally, he said, I'll instruct the snakes to stand down until you return. For some reason, that angered Baz. I thought you told them to listen to me. Oh, I did, and I meant it. But you saw it yourself. Ogs doesn't have complete control over them. And you do? 
Tex ignored the question. This isn't a game anymore, Bastion. You must commit yourself. You must bring back that which you've promised, or the snakes will move forward. Tex, you can't... We can't go on like this, Baz. Would you really condemn all others like us to live in constant fear of ending up as I have? Tex reached up to the cloth around his eyes, making as if to yank it free. Baz hastily stopped him, grabbing his wrist. It really wasn't as bad as one might think. Sometimes the unknown is far worse than the truth. Where Tex's eyes ought to have been, there were instead dried patches of pink flesh, looking particularly out of place against his olive complexion. His lids were mostly shut, eyelashes still intact, and from a distance one might not even notice his eyes were missing. For Baz, though, the sight was nausea-inducing. The terror of his childhood that had never fully left him brought back into clear focus as if it had just happened. He tried with limited success to keep his hand from shaking as he strengthened his grip on Tax's wrist. Don't, Tax. You know what it does to me. I do, and you should stop pretending that you're the only speaker who suffered such a horror. There are men and women in every library of oration who have witnessed what you did that day, and worse besides. You should want this war just as much as anyone. I said I'm going, Baz muttered. Look, I, I need to leave. I was supposed to run some errands for Deliritus before meeting Ogs. The market's going to close if I don't get over there. Baz turned to go, but Tax shot out a hand and grabbed his arm. How did he do that without seeing? Be safe, little brother. Baz patted his brother's hand, a smile forcing its way onto his face, though he kept his eyes off Tax's face. Even with the wrapping still around his eyes, Baz couldn't banish the image of Tax's mutilated visage from his mind. I'll keep surviving. That's what you told me all those years ago. Tax could give his arm a squeeze, and Baz gave his brother's hand another pat. Then he was heading toward Liana's workshop. She wasn't there, likely still at the conservatory, participating in a discussion over who would be their representative at the Congress. Hopefully they didn't pick Master Restorer Brenneton. Baz had never gotten along with him. Actually, he'd never gotten along with any conservator save Liana, so it probably didn't matter who they chose. He headed up the stairs, climbing until he exited onto the library's main level. He was about to turn toward the exit and return to the market when a guard rushed past, nearly knocking Baz over. Broken nibs, man, Baz cursed. Are the books burning? Haven't you heard? The guard shouted over his shoulder without slowing. The harbors are fighting! Hello, friends. Welcome back to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is September 4th, 2022, as I record this, uh, episode 7 of season 2 of the book club, and episode number 34 overall. Hope you enjoyed listening to chapters 8 and 9 there. Uh, we're not doing analysis this week, but Tax, he's leading a rebellion, <laughs> apparently. Uh, in erstwhile. I uh, wonder if any of you saw that coming. He's also apparently uh, 
building uh, Baz up to, uh, you know, maybe something Baz doesn't want to be built up to, spreading all these rumors about how uh, amazing Baz is. But uh, we'll dig into that in more detail in two weeks uh, as we analyze uh, the remainder of part one of Declaimer's Discovery. Next week, we'll just be reading chapter 10, which is the last chapter of part one of Declaimer's Discovery. And then the following week, we'll be doing analysis of chapters uh, 8, 9, and 10, I think. Our last analysis section covered up through 7, I believe. Um, so sorry to break it up like that. I, I try not to have episodes where you don't get at least one chapter of reading, but um, I have a work trip next week. Uh, and I also <laughs> have uh, uh, Declaimer's Stand, part 4 of the Spoken Books Uprising coming out the same week as my work trip, so I really need to uh, <laughs> cut down the workload just a little to make sure that releases on time. So uh, there you go. We'll be reading Chapter 10 next week, and we'll see uh, just what that guard meant at the end of Chapter 9 when he shouted that the harbors are fighting. Uh, hope that uh, builds up some excitement for you, so stay tuned until next week uh, for that. <laughs> Uh, let's see, a couple of personal things. I hope you got a chuckle out of my, uh, <laughs> my, uh, my failed spelling of the word peak in last week's newsletter that I, uh, pointed out in this week's. Of course, a sneak peek is P-E-E-K, but, uh, they called it P-E-A-K in the newsletter last week, so hope you got a chuckle at that, you know, but, uh, even us writers are not perfect when it comes to typos. In fact, I'm a particularly bad in that regard. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good at telling stories, but I'm not like a grammar grammar king by any means. So, I appreciate those of you who noticed it for not uh, sending me uh, a shaming a shaming email. I'll try to do better here in the future, but uh, there will undoubtedly be more typos in the future. So, it's just is what it is. Especially when you're just a independent. Uh, like me, I can only proofread my stuff so many times, and of course, I have an editor look at my novels and stuff. But uh, you know, I'm, I proofread the the newsletter, and it goes out as it goes. So there, there it is. Uh, and I'm not afraid to own up to it. So hope you can at least respect that. Uh, let's see what else is going on in the DTK Media Empire this week. Uh, I completed my first full outline of Spoken Books Uprising Part Five. Uh, still to be titled. I'm not, not sure what I'm going to call it yet. Um, in my outlining process, like I said in the newsletter this week, a lot of staring into space and pulling out hair. Not pulling out hair, but pulling of hair. I think the... Uh, I just did a little pose there. Maybe that'll be the thumbnail. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> uh, but a lot of that. Uh, also reviewing some of my favorite plotting resources. Um Really enjoyed Reedsy's, not enjoyed, I enjoy, I have it bookmarked, I look at it all the time, but Reedsy has a very useful article uh, on the three-act structure with lots of good examples that I reference often. Uh, Reedsy, for those who don't know, is they have a lot of articles about craft and they also have a marketplace where creatives can, uh, can hire independent contractors like editors and graphic designers. Uh, so if you're... Uh, such a person, you can go over there and check Reedsy out. This is not sponsored or anything. I just find them uh, very useful. Uh, I also like uh, Save the Cat Writes a Novel by Jessica Brody, which is based on the uh, 
the well-known Save the Cat screenwriting guide by Blake Snyder. Um, that's another resource I frequently look at when I'm plotting new books. Um, but so the part five outline is at least, uh, at least it's down. I'll probably do another run through of it and try to imagine what plot holes I might come up with and try to fix them ahead of time. But inevitably something always goes wrong in the drafting, but I try to head off as many problems as I can in the outlining stage. Um, now I'm back to reviewing some of my editor's comments on part four and polishing that up for release on September 16th. So, uh, there it is. Uh, let's see. Hope everyone's getting excited for that release. Uh, you can still pre-order it on most places where you can buy, uh, e-books if you want to make sure you get it on the release day, which is, uh, less than two weeks away now. Let's see. I'm also doing a signed book giveaway this week in the newsletter. Um... You can either just shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com, and I'll get you entered into that. Or if you are already a newsletter subscriber, just open this week's newsletter and click on the link in there to automatically get entered. And uh, like I like I say in there too, once you once you click that link, it's going to take you to the review page for the Actus Trials. And if you wouldn't mind just taking a minute to leave an, an honest review of that, that really helps me out. As I've kind of said ad nauseum at this point, <laughs> I'm sure maybe some of you are sick of hearing it at this point, but you know, the more reviews a book has, the kind of the more uh, respect, I guess I would, I would say, at least that puts it nicely, the more respect the retailers, especially Amazon, give to it. So it helps give me a boost if, uh, if you leave a, leave a review. So if you've, if you've read The Actus Trials, uh, if you wouldn't mind just dropping a review, uh, that would be great. And you'll also be entered to win uh, a signed copy of Declaimer's Discovery, part two of the Spoken Books Uprising. Uh, just to be clear, you do not have to leave a review to enter. You will be entered as soon as you click that link or shoot me an email saying that you want to be entered. Um, let's see. I think that's all the personal news here. Oh, uh, one other thing. Uh, the first story in my Temporal Operations Militia series of short stories is now up on Patreon for my Patreon subscribers. Uh, if you'd like to see a free sample of that, you can go over to my Patreon page, uh, DTK, or excuse me, uh, patreon.com slash DTKane. Uh, there's a free preview there, and if that looks interesting, consider signing up for my Patreon, uh, just $3.99 a month, and you'll get access to that story and all the subsequent stories in the series. In addition to free copies of all of my ebooks, a and an extra podcast episode each month, uh, I think you could describe Temporal Operations Militia as field medics for the space-time continuum. Uh, so, if that sounds uh, at all interesting to you, uh, be sure to stop on over to my Patreon page and check it out. Uh, right, that's uh, I think that's it for the personal update just going to do the quote of the week and then we will call it an episode um so this week's quote comes from J.R.R. tolkien the fellowship of the ring uh i was listening to some lectures uh by a professor from F finland i should have looked this up greece i don't know let me let me see here just open up the old audible app here uh Demetra Femi is the name of the lecturer. She is a professor somewhere. Mm. 
I find that info? Title details. Here we go. Oh, here we go. She is from uh, Scotland. Or, well, she was born in Greece and now is a professor in Scotland. She is a senior lecturer in fantasy and children's literature at the University of Glasgow. Demetra Fini. Uh, and she has this series of 10 lectures called The World of J.R.R. Tolkien, which is free if you're an Audible subscriber. Again, this isn't sponsored, but I'm an Audible subscriber, and I listened to it for free, and I thought it was really good. So um, if you're interested in Tolkien, maybe go check that out. But anyway, that's why I decided to take a Tolkien quote for this week, and also since uh, we flipped the calendar September and fall is, you know depending on how you want to look at it, either right around the corner or kind of already starting. thought I would find a quote about autumn, and here is one from Mr. Tolkien. This is uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. I think it's the chapter right after Bilbo's party and he disappears. So this is uh, talking about Frodo here. He found himself wondering at times, especially in the autumn, about the wild lands and the strange visions of mountains that he had never seen came into his dreams. He looked at maps and wondered what lay beyond their edges. That's Tolkien, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, and, of course, as always, my little uh, interpretive essay here. Change can be difficult, but sometimes it's easier when combined with an external cue. The shifting of seasons is such an opportunity. Change is all around us this time of year. Summer vacations ending, school years beginning, leaves changing colors, short sleeves exchanged for sweaters. In this atmosphere of transition, consider putting to practice a change you've been putting off. It doesn't have to be big. One less cup of coffee in the morning, a five-minute exercise routine, or even finally taking that day trip to see the autumn leaves that you always say you'd like to do. It's often easier to do something with a new partner, but that partner doesn't have to be a person. Use the inevitable tide of change that's occurring all around you this time of year as the motivation you need. Whenever you look out the window and see those golden leaves, let it be a reminder of the change you want to put into practice. All right, hope you enjoyed that. And as always, if you have a quote you'd like me to uh, consider including in a future quote of the week segment, email me, dtkane at dtkane.com, and maybe I will write an essay about your favorite fantasy quote uh, in an upcoming newsletter and read it on the podcast. All right, that's all for this week. Uh, again, reading assignment for next week is Chapter 10 of Declaimer's Discovery. Uh, and until then, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. DT Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com slash books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for DT Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, 
You can find DT Kane on Facebook at DT Kane Author or Twitter at DT Kane Author. Or send DT Kane an email at DT Kane at DT Kane.com. See you next week.